Describe the joy that we experience when giving. Well, I'd like to say that, first of all, I am like off the charts when it comes to giving, probably so much that it drives my wife nuts at times. But uh, 2 Corinthians 9 verse 7 says, God loves a cheerful giver. And I sometimes wonder if I ought to have that tattooed uh, somewhere on my chest. But, you know, for us, and it was a process because over the years, we really needed to work towards a lot of areas of our budgeting. And one of those ultimately became with giving above our tithe. And so now we budget intentionally above the tithe. We even invest some of those dollars so we can grow it more. And then when we're ready to give, it really just becomes a matter of being aware of the Holy Spirit's prompting. And then, because it's already budgeted, and then all we have to do is really kind of say, hey, we think we ought to do this or do that. And, you know, we pray about it. And then it's easy to do at that point because we had already budgeted to be able to give. And all we needed to do is just kind of wait for the sign of when to do it. But boy, I tell you, when you have it budgeted, it takes a lot of relief. There's a lot of freedom in that. And man, there is nothing better than giving and blessing the socks off of somebody. Wouldn't you agree? I agree. I agree, especially for me that it is um, a blessing knowing that I have put this money aside to help someone who needs it at that point in time and that I don't have to stress about where it's going to come from or how much can I give. I just feel like it's something that the Lord has said, hey, you've already done this. Good job. And please give and help someone out. So it's really been a blessing to be able to put that money aside and really bless other people. The joy I receive from giving is uh, just helping those that are in need. Because yes, we may have our issues, but there are people that are in greater need than what we are. So helping as much as possible is beneficial for everyone. I agree. I love seeing their faces light up. Um, sometimes they're at their end of the rope and they don't think they have help anywhere else. And so being able to provide, even if it's our last dollar, knowing they need it more and trusting that God will provide for us and double for them, um, it just blesses my heart. The joy I experience when giving um, is, I love that I get to give back to God when um, I think about all that He's given me, all that He's sacrificed for me. I get this inexplicable joy um, of returning that back to Him and um, having a part in His kingdom. Well, good morning. My name is Ryan. I'm on the team here at Crossroads. I'm grateful to be with you this morning. Before we get started, I want to take a, a brief moment to recognize that this past week we celebrated a holiday in our country called Veterans Day. We celebrated that Friday, and that day is set aside for those that have served or are currently serving throughout all the different branches of our military. And these past several weeks, we've been talking about generosity. Generosity is one of those words that comes to my mind when I think about these people that have given, that have served. And so I want to ask, if you are someone that has, would consider themselves a, a past veteran or a current veteran, would you mind standing, please?
And if you could remain standing, because I want to invite your family, those that also that have partnered with you and walk alongside you through that journey, if you're part of these people's family, would you mind standing as well so we can recognize you as well? Thank you. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, today is the final message in a sermon series that we have entitled Generosity According to Jesus. In these past three weeks, we've looked to Jesus to define and illustrate what generosity is all about. And I think we've come to realize that we can't finish the phrase any other way, generosity according to, it's not according to me and it's not according to you, it is according to Jesus. And when we open up the New Testament, we see Jesus living out, modeling generosity time and time again. We see him interacting with men and women throughout the Gospels, often around this topic of generosity. I mean, think back to these last few weeks. We've seen Jesus explain through a parable what being principled is all about with the talents that God has given us. Or when Jesus is in the temple and he observes a widowed woman giving all that she has to live on, giving wholeheartedly. We've also seen Jesus encounter a man who came up to Jesus and then ultimately left Jesus saddened because he hadn't let go of what was in his hands. He hadn't surrendered. Or in the case of our text this morning, a woman who breaks a bottle in an overjoyed expression of generosity. See, these past few weeks, what we've been trying to do is to get God's whole heart around this topic. We want to see everything that God has to say about generosity. We want to see his whole heart. So we realize that God wants us to be principled. He doesn't want us to be in debt. He doesn't want us to make bad financial decisions or for our story to be constantly pursuing things that are immediate immediately gratifying. I mean, he wants us to get our financial house in order. He wants to, us to invest our lives and not bury it in the sand. He wants us to be faithful stewards so that we can meet the needs of people and respond generously. And we've seen that being principled stewards allows us to respond wholeheartedly so that we aren't giving God our leftovers or our afterthoughts. We can then eagerly give him our time and our resources, our giftedness, our finances, to the point where we are willing to forego personal advancement, personal preference, personal comfort, because we've decided we're going to give it to the kingdom, even if it costs us personally. And when we give up ourselves in that sort of way, a wholehearted way, we realize that, that our hands are no longer holding on to the stuff our world says is important, our culture and capitalism say are important, things like our 401k, things like the next promotion at work, or what our image is on social media. Not only do we find ourselves surrendered in the financial areas of our life, but we realize that more and more our entire lives are fully surrendered to him. Well, this morning, the final aspect of generosity, the, the piece that completes the heart, is we want to look at this overjoyed expression of generosity. We're going to find that, that when we respond to Jesus in a principled, wholehearted uh, surrendered sort of way that when all comes together in this mixture, that the fruit of that sort of life is this joyous or overjoyed generosity. And that brings us to our text this morning. We're going to be in Luke chapter 7. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and get it out. If, if you forgot it, there are a few Bibles in front of you. I encourage you to, to open those up as well. Remember, every time we open up God's Word, God is ready to speak, and we want to be ready to listen, and we're open to being changed. Now, when we open up Scripture, we realize that all four of the Gospels have a similar story to what we're going to look at in starting in verse 36, an account of Jesus being anointed by a woman. 
that each of those accounts are a little bit different, probably took place at different times under different circumstances with different people. And so we're just going to look exclusively at Luke's account this morning. Now, Luke, the author of, of this gospel, he was a doctor. And though he wasn't one of the original 12 disciples, he did uh, travel with Paul and he interacted with other eyewitnesses and he spent a lot of time and care intentionally interacting with those individuals and recorded uh, his gospel. He tells us at the very beginning of his gospel that he, he wanted to put together an ordered account. He wanted to have a lot of detail. We're going to see that reflected in our account this morning. So when we pick it up in Luke chapter 7, we're going to find Jesus with his disciples in the, somewhere in the middle of his three-year earthly ministry. And what I'd like to do this morning is just read verses 36, 37, 38 first. I want to provide some context for those, for those verses. We'll talk about those a bit, and then we'll complete the story at the end this morning. So starting in Luke chapter 7, begin in verse 36. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, Jesus went to the Pharisee's house and he reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind Jesus at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. I'm going to pause there for a second. This section of scripture may be familiar to us, but when you really slow down and read it, you see that there are some details in there that are a little difficult to understand, maybe a little awkward. And so what I want to do is I want to set some context for what it would have been like that day. And I want to try to do so as though we were in the room with Jesus for that meal. So to set the scene, we have to understand what a dinner party would look like in the first century. And an event like this, hosted by a prominent Pharisee, the guests, the dinner guests would have been prominent as well. People of high reputation, those that took their religion very, very seriously. And when they came to eat, they would have reclined at a table, which meant their legs, their feet would have been away from the table. They would have laid out with, on their left arm, their left elbow, and would have eaten on, with their right hand. And a meal like this it was probably associated with a Sabbath or other high Jewish festival, which means it would have been a public meal, probably something we're not used to. But the idea is that people that weren't invited guests could also come and attend. They could stand or sit along the outside of the room and they could have listened to the conversation, maybe try to find an opportunity to beg for scraps. And when these prominent dinner guests would have arrived, it was customary for the host to do a few things. One, to have a servant wash the, the feet of the attendees. Remember, this is first century Palestine, so a lot of dust and grime on the feet. They want to make sure that people were fresh. They also wanted to anoint their head with oil. Again, another thing that was going to leave them refreshed for the meal. Then the host would have typically greeted each of the dinner guests with a kiss. Now, notice our main character here, the woman in this account. Notice she doesn't have a name, but she's described as a woman known only for her sins. Think about that for a moment. What would it be like? If you were defined and known for the worst thing that you did on your worst day, imagine what that would be like. I mean, it'd be like me coming to a room and rather it being like, oh, hey, there's Ryan. No, 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 that's, hey, there's Ryan the cheat. Or my wife's name is Catherine. And rather than saying, oh, hey, there's Catherine when she comes in a room and no, it's Catherine the addict. See, for this woman, they didn't see her face. They didn't know her name. All they saw was her shame, her failure, and that's all that she was to them. But it's clear from the, her later actions and Jesus' later words in this account that 
she most likely had encountered him before, like a life-changing sort of encounter where she would have placed her faith and hope and trust eternally in him. And in that previous encounter, Jesus would have seen her sin. He would have. But he had also seen her face. He had known her name. He saw her heart. So when this woman hears that Jesus is going to be present at this dinner party, she makes plans to attend. And she finds a way to get into the room. And the text says that she stood as close as she could to Jesus, literally standing on the outside of the room, right there by Jesus' feet. And as she, she stands there, the people are eating and things are merry. She notices something, though. She notices that Jesus' feet have not been washed. And we can infer that many of the other guests must have received this, this level of respect and devotion by this, the, the host, the Pharisee. But for whatever reason, when it came to Jesus, when Jesus came in, they neglected to show Jesus that level of devotion. And so the woman notices this, this woman known only for her sins, but yet she gets emotional at the fact that, really, you couldn't give Jesus this small level of respect? And so she may have been thinking, do you, do you know who this man is, this man Jesus? Do you know how much he loves you? Do you know how much he loves me? I mean, why couldn't you clean his feet when he came in? I've seen it in my own life. He has the power to clean up your whole life. He's done that for me. And so as she's thinking this thought, this woman is overtaken with emotion and she begins to cry. And what begins is a few tears rolling down her cheeks turns into all out weeping. And this would not have been the response that she was, came for that day or expecting. I mean, yes, she came with this alabaster jar, but she wasn't prepared for this sort of response. But her love of Jesus and both her sadness at how he had been treated, I mean, it, it leads to this outpouring of emotion. And because she's in such close proximity to Jesus, as the tears roll down her face and onto the ground, they actually don't hit the ground at all. They fall on Jesus' feet. And after a few moments of this, she realizes that she's beginning to make a scene. And so she begins to look for something to wipe up the tears. But when she looks at what she's wearing, there's nothing that she's wearing that is worthwhile. Everything that she would have had was most likely dirty, would have been considered rags. So she's looking at what she has to offer. The only thing that she can think to do, again, overcome with emotion, is to let down her hair, which would have been covered for propriety in that culture, as well as to keep it clean. This is something that no one would have ever done, definitely not something that she was expecting to do that day, but she decides that she's going to let down her hair. And she begins to wipe up the tears on Jesus' feet. And the text says she bends down close to the feet of Jesus and begins to kiss his feet. And then she takes that alabaster jar of ointment full of perfumed oil, and she opens that bottle. She breaks it. Now, that bottle would have been highly valued for her. I mean, her entire financial security would have been wrapped up in it. I mean, it would have been valued at probably a year's wages. And yet she decides it's worthwhile to break the bottle, pour the ointment on Jesus' feet. Not unlike the woman we talked about two weeks ago who gave all that she had wholeheartedly, those two copper coins. So she breaks the bottle and gives all that she has. Now, this passage may be familiar to us, but when we slow down and think about the text and pretend as though we are there in that room, I mean, it's clear, isn't it, that this is a love story, pure and simple. When we slow down and read it, we see the devotion of this woman. We see her heart. We see her open-handed, surrendered response. And that's how we should try to read Scripture all the time. And we can't just read it and move on. We've got to feel it. Scripture is, is, is written to be felt, to be experienced, because ultimately the experience we read in Scripture is our experience. Isn't it true that we, 
at times have been moved maybe to tears, moved to tears by the God who loves us and has pursued us time and time again. As I said earlier, joyous generosity is the, mix, mix, the mixture of print, this principle, wholehearted, surrendered response, all coming together. And that's exactly what we see with this woman. So this morning, I want to take a look at this scripture, uh, take a closer look, specifically at her response. I'm going to do so in three ways. I'm going to break it down this way. I want to, I want to know, what does joyous generosity look like? I'll take a closer look at that. What does it sound like? And what does it smell like? So this first thing I want to say is generosity, it looks like an active obedience. Emphasis on active, emphasis on obedience. Because when we look at the woman's life and her response here, everything that she did was active. It wasn't passive. It was active. She, she came. She broke the bottle. She let down her hair. Her tears fell on Jesus' feet. None of these responses were passive. So I think it's important to realize as we pursue holiness, as we pursue generosity and living and loving like Jesus, this is not something that just happens to us. It doesn't just happen to us, and it certainly doesn't come naturally. We have to choose. We have to choose. And I think Jesus makes that clear a little bit later in Luke's account of Jesus's life. I'm going to pick it up in verse or chapter 9, verse 23. You may be familiar with, with this text where Jesus says to his disciples, Hey guys, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and follow me. Notice the verbs, deny, take up, follow. Notice what Jesus does not say. Jesus does not say that he can take up the cross and put it on your back for you. No, the implication is that we have to pick up our cross daily. We have to choose to be generous. We have to choose to live and love like Jesus. I think it's important to note, and we have to realize that we ultimately become what we choose. We become what we choose. Living out joyous generosity is a decision that we must make, a decision that requires us to put our faith where our mouth is. We have to choose. Our life is made up of those kinds of choices. Crawford Loritz is a, a pastor that I listen to from time to time from Atlanta. He puts it this way. When you're born, you look like your parents. When you die, you look like your decisions. When you die, you look like your decisions. So what will our life look like when we're at the end of our life? Will it be made up of days where we have decided, we have chosen to be generous? And I think it's also important to note that God doesn't want us to be unclear or mystified by what this looks like, choosing to be generous every day. I mean, he's written in his word, giving us clear instructions, the very book that we're reading and looking at right now. When we see later on in 2 Corinthians, when Paul is writing to the Corinthian church, Paul puts it this way in chapter 9. I'm going to pick it up in verse 6 in the message. Paul says, remember, a stingy planter gets a stingy crop. A lavish planter gets a lavish crop. I want each of you to take plenty of time to think it over and make up your own mind what you will give. That will protect you against sob stories and arm twisting God loves it when the giver delights in the giving. And so we delight in the giving when we choose, when we choose an active obedience. We could say that living out joyous generosity, it looks like an active obedience. It looks like that. It also sounds like a breaking bottle. I mean, as we read this woman's actions, we have to understand that she wasn't 
uh, uninformed about the value of that alabaster jar that she decided to break. She knew that her whole financial existence was wrapped up in that, yet her love for Jesus was superior to the desire to hold on to something material. And her actions revealed the truth that we weren't made to hold on to things or to keep things. We were made, God made us to steward what he gave us, to invest what he's given us, to give and to serve. Or to put it a different way, God has invited us to break the bottle. And that's an invitation that we all receive. Those that are young or old, the small or tall of us, the well-resourced or not, we are all invited to do that. And we see that invitation in the New Testament through Jesus' words. We also see it in the Old Testament. I mean, if you think back to Exodus in chapter 23, this is after God has rescued his people and he's brought them out and he's giving them instructions, laying out the plan for various feasts and sacrifices. He makes sure to say this in verse 15 of chapter 23. God says, he says, no one, no one is to appear before me empty-handed. So in the Old Testament and in the New, we're commanded, we're invited to break a bottle. Now, it's important to note, too, that the contents may be different, that the bottle that I have may be a different size or shape than yours with different contents, but we're invited to break the bottle nonetheless. You know, as I was preparing for this sermon this morning, as I was reading through this, I went through this mental exercise, and I was thinking to myself, what would that look like This whole, everyone has a bottle to break and everyone breaks it. What would that look like in a church context? I mean, is it even possible? Does history even record any gathering of God's people that were willing to do that? Well, at some point I continued reading Exodus and I was like, yes, there it is. In verse 36, I'm sorry, in chapter 36, in verse 3, God, again, as he's uh, pursued his people as he rescued them from 40 years of slavery. He set them free. He's given them instructions and he's inviting them to respond. Here we read the response. Exodus chapter 36, starting in verse three. They, the craftsmen, these are the people that would take everything that was given to help create this sanctuary, this worship house for God. They received from Moses all the offerings the Israelites had brought to carry out the work of constructing the sanctuary. And the people continued to bring free will offerings morning after morning. So all the skilled workers who were doing all the work on the sanctuary, they left what they were doing and said to Moses, the people, Moses, the people are bringing more than enough for doing the work the Lord commanded to be done. And then Moses gave an order and they sent this word throughout all the camp. No man or woman is to make anything else as an offering for the sanctuary. And so the people were restrained. Let me underline that word, restrained from bringing more because what they had already was more than enough to do all the work. I mean, their response, their joyous generosity, I mean, it's it's amazing to think about. So again, as I was going through this mental exercise, thinking, okay, in Exodus, we read about it being done by a gathering of God's people. But what would that look like here at Crossroads? I mean, here we are, God's people gathered together. What would it look like if we all responded that way? Would it be someone on stage saying, hey guys, there are no giving boxes out there today. We had to hide them, lock them up because we don't know what to do with them. The boxes are too small and we don't have time to count all the money. Can you imagine us saying that from stage? Or think about next week at Vision Sunday. Imagine someone on stage saying, hey, because everyone gave so much this year, we've met budget, we've met all our financial obligations through all of our partners and we're asking you between now and the end of the year, will you please scour all of your neighborhoods to see if, we, if there's somebody that we can be generous to. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? 
Now that may seem farsighted, it may seem unlikely, but it's important to note that this is the kind of generosity, this overjoyed generosity that Jesus is inviting us to. And I think, I really do think that he's inviting us to that sort of generosity this year in this place. I mean, next week we're going to hear about the details. We're going to celebrate what God has done in 2022. We're going to hear the details of where God is leading in 2023. And we're going to set out what the financial obligation is going to need to be between now and the end of the year. So that way we can start next year fresh and we can run wholeheartedly after that vision. And what would it be like if we could meet that vision? I think Jesus is inviting us, maybe challenging us to consider breaking a bottle. Now, more than meeting a bottom line or a budget, it's this type of generous response that one person can make and one family can make or a small group of people can make. And as we build individuals into tens and twenties and hundreds, it's this kind of response that changes family trees. It rewrites the story of a community. It ultimately brings the kingdom into the here and now. Now, I know many here at Crossroads have broken bottles in the past. We have to understand that this this type of generous life, it's not a one-time decision. It's not. I know from personal experience, as my wife and I many years ago decided that we were going to sell everything we had to go into the mission field. And we did that and spent several years in Haiti. But now that we're back in the States, I don't think God has our resume and says, oh, Ryan was a missionary, check. No, I think God is continuing to invite my wife and I to invest every single day, every single moment, every single dollar for the kingdom. He's inviting all of us to do that. And that's a hard task to do. And sometimes we, we fail at that. So let me take a moment just to think of the alternative. What, what does it look like when we don't do that? Well, how many times do we come into God's house, into God's presence, and we, we don't have anything to offer We don't have anything to give. Our bottles we've left at home or we've buried them in the ground. Maybe it's because we take our culture's consumer mentality wherever we go, which means that we bring it here on Sunday morning and we take it to work or school on Monday morning. Maybe it's we take our culture's distracted indifference and that's what we lay at God's feet when we come here to worship him or that's what we have in our minds and hearts when we seek to read God's word or even when we're trying to pray before a meal. Now, that isn't our intention. We want to be better. We want more. So let's flip the script. What does it look like to respond the way that God is inviting us to? What does it look like to break a bottle? Well, again, we have to remember that every person's bottle is a different shape and size, and the response could be different. But a large bottle could be deciding that you're going to sell your house, not to get a bigger house and move to the better neighborhood, but actually so you can downsize, so that you can intentionally budget to give above and beyond the tide, something that Angelo mentioned in the video. It could be deciding, you know what, for once we're going to sit down and create a budget, but the very first line, the very first line is going to be 10% of what we make, giving it to God wholeheartedly. It could also be, breaking a bottle could look like taking the the challenge of the 4-1 project, taking that seriously every time we come on a Sunday morning. Remember that the 4-1 project is just a framework to actively steward our prayers our time, our giftedness, our money. But it's going to be something that's present each and every week where every time we walk into this building, we can decide to respond, decide to give above and beyond what we typically give, even if it's just $1. And that's, that provides a lot of accountability for people like me who my wife and I sit down every month and we, we give electronically once a month. 
Well, it's really easy for me to walk into this place and not have anything to offer. It's really easy for me to walk in and to say, you know what, I don't have any cash, I don't, I don't carry cash. But if I'm to take this level of joyous generosity and make it an act of obedience, then I, I know where the bank is. I can go to the bank, I can get cash, and I can decide to drop a dollar or five or a $10 bill, whatever it is, if nothing else, so that I can tell and remind my heart that I'm not gonna serve two masters. I'm not gonna serve two masters. I'm not going to bury what God has given me to steward. I'm not gonna bury it in the sand. So whether we're young or old, rich or poor, no matter what the size or shape of our bottle is, we must decide to break the bottle. So this joyous generosity, it looks like an act of obedience, living out that kind of generosity. It sounds like breaking a bottle, and it also, this may seem weird, but it, may, it smells like a pleasing aroma. It smells like a pleasing aroma. I mean, think back to the text. Think back to the text and the situation this woman finds herself in. I mean, if they didn't notice her letting down her hair, if they didn't notice her weeping, they would have definitely noticed when she broke the bottle because the bottle would have allowed this aroma to fill the room. It would have gotten everyone's attention. They would have, everyone's eyes would have been drawn on this woman. And then they would have been drawn on Jesus. And then their eyes would probably go to the host who's sitting right next to both of them as this is all taking place. Yet, despite her sin, her reputation, her label, the fact that everyone is watching her, her joyous expression of generosity, this pleasing aroma, this pleasing aroma, which was not just the contents of the bottle and that aroma, but the, the, her response, her devoted response, I mean, it literally and figuratively changed the environment around her. It changed the environment around her. And I think Paul may have had that in his mind when he was writing to the Corinthians, when he wrote to them in chapter 2 of 2 Corinthians. I'm going to pick it up in verse 14 in the message, where Paul says this, In the Messiah, in Christ, God leads us from place to place in one perpetual victory parade. Through us, he brings knowledge of Christ. And everywhere we go, people breathe in the exquisite fragrance. Because of Christ, we give off a sweet scent rising to God, which is recognized by those on the way of salvation, an aroma redolent with life. But those on the way to destruction, they treat us more like the stench from a rotting corpse. And this is a terrific responsibility. Is anyone competent to take it on? Are we competent to live this sort of aromatic life demonstrated by this woman? No. But at least we don't take God's word, water it down and then take it to the streets to sell it cheap. I mean, we stand in God's presence when we speak. God looks us in the face. We get what we say straight from God and say it as honestly as we can. So yes, the aroma from the bottle, and, but yes, the aroma from her life. Remember, when she walked into that room, she probably wasn't smelling so good, but after this act of devotion, everyone saw it. And it changed the environment around it. And we are called to do the same. We are called to use another metaphor. We're called to be thermostats. We set the temperature around us with our joyful generosity. We aren't just sitting on our seats, staying on the sideline, waiting for the right moment. We are moving in God's direction. So our joy, the joy of that movement, it's, it's not static. So we're not thermometers recording the temperature. We are thermostats that set the temperature. And here's the thing. We find our example. We find our example in Christ. I mean, think about Jesus and how he refused to stay on the sideline. Think about Jesus and how he chose to model this joyous generosity. Paul writes of it in 2 Corinthians. I'm gonna pick it up in chapter nine, verse eight. Paul says, God can pour on the blessings in astonishing ways so that we're ready for anything and everything. 
more than just ready to do what needs to be done. As one psalmist puts it, God throws caution to the winds. He gives to the needy and reckless abandoned. His right living, right giving ways, they never run out. They never wear out. This most generous God who gives seed to the farmer that becomes bread for your meals is more than extravagant with you. He gives you something that you can then give away, which grows into full form lives, robust in God, wealthy in every way, so that you can be generous in every way, producing with us great praise to God. I mean, aren't we glad that Jesus came and then he broke the bottle of his life, that he poured out his entire life for us? Haven't you been able to smell and sense the aroma of Christ in and through your life? And when we think about the reality of our sinful condition and how much we need forgiveness, the depth of our gratitude and the magnitude of our response, I mean, it can only increase. And our response should take us to the people and places that need this aroma of Christ, So who are those people for you? Where are those places? And when you go to those places and you talk to those people, what does your life smell like? Because when we look at this woman, we see a life of joyous generosity that has an aroma that can't help but change the environment around her. And we are invited to that same life as well. Now, with the time we have remaining, I wanna wanna finish the story. So if you wouldn't mind picking back up in Luke chapter seven, verse 39. When the Pharisee who had invited Jesus, he's he's been watching all this, he says to himself, so he's not speaking out loud, he's thinking it in his head. If this man were a prophet, he would know who's touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she's a sinner. Jesus answered him, answered his thoughts. If you ever wanna know what a prophet looks like, he answers your thoughts, okay? Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. So one large debt, one smaller. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, Simon, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You judge correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and he says to Simon, Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house, but you didn't give me water for my feet, but she's wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. Simon, you didn't give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. Simon, you didn't put oil on my head, but she's poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, Simon, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown, but whoever has been forgiven little loves little. And then Jesus says to the woman, your sins are forgiven. Now, of course, the other guests begin to say among themselves, "Who, who is this guy who can even forgive sins? But Jesus Again, says to her, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Do you see the question that Jesus asked Simon in verse 44? Jesus says, Simon, do you see this woman? No, no, no. Simon, do you see her? Did you see her response? I'm, Simon, don't, don't, I'm not asking you to look at the label that you've given her. Do you see this devotion? Do you see this generosity? I'm going to finish this way. We oftentimes, when we read scripture, we, we identify with one of the characters and we read ourselves into the story. And I think that's, that's appropriate to do. Oftentimes with this account, we read ourselves into the story as though we're this woman. But I wonder, I wonder if it, maybe sometimes, maybe many times, we're not the woman in the story, we're Simon. Or we've invited Jesus to dine with us. but We've neglected to show him the devotion that he deserves. And so when Jesus is asking Simon, he's not asking Simon, he's asking 
us. He's asking crossroads. Crossroads, do you see her? Do you see her response? Do you love me like that? See, here at Crossroads, we seek to live and love like Jesus, not to meet a bottom line or a budget, because we're a people that has been shown a generous love, a generous grace. Like this woman, we can say that we have been forgiven much. And that's why we've been talking about generosity these last few weeks, and that's why we're grateful. What are we grateful for? We are grateful for this generosity according to Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you humbled. Humbled because we know that there are times when we give you our first and best that you can clearly see the devotion of our hearts. But we also know that there are times when our hearts betray us and that we rather choose ourselves rather than you. This morning we ask for forgiveness for that. Father, we look to the model that we see in this woman and Father, we want our lives to reflect that sort of generous, that sort of generous response. We want to be joyous because of the way that you have forgiven us. So help us to do that today. Help us to take one more step in your direction. And we ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen.